economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith and economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith and Economics Podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm Jacob Caudill, the undergraduate scholar for the Gordon Institute. With me today is Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gordon Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics, and Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, we're on our part two here journey at uh, Creighton University. We've got three professors up here to talk about uh, religion and collective action, which I think is appropriate for our Faith and Economics podcast. But before we do that, I wanted Dr. Michael Thomas to have an opportunity to talk about his institute here. Well, welcome to Creighton. So we're sitting here with a group that's sponsored by the Institute for Economic Inquiry. And we were founded in 2014 uh, to promote the economic ideas. Our, our three main topics that, that we talk about are economics, ethics, and entrepreneurship. Uh, our whole mission is to get the economic perspective represented in the conversation at Creighton University. So we organize student events, we bring in speakers, we have faculty seminars, we pay for uh, student research scholarships, and we send people to present their research at conferences. So that's uh, what we've been doing since 2014. And more recently, we were supported by the Menard family to extend our project a few more years in the future. Yes, and the Menard family is a sponsor of ours as well that we're very grateful for. So in addition to Dr. Michael Thomas, we have Dr. Tony Gill from the University of Washington and Dr. Vlad Tarko from the University of Arizona. So this topic here of religion and collective action, has religion been good over the years or not? Dr. Thomas, I think we're going to start with you. I, I think I, I know you personally, religion is important to you. And I think we're at a Catholic-based school here, so I think religion gets talked about at least once in a while. I'm sure not everybody has to be a card-carrying Catholic to come here, I believe. But nonetheless, what do you think about religion and collective action? Well, one of the reasons that I came to Creighton University is because it has a a religious background. And I think what, what that meant to me at the time when I made that decision was that all conversations are pointed towards some purpose that we can all join in and talk about together, however we define it, and people are allowed to disagree. So I thought that that fundamental background allowed for the conversation to center around a specific conversation the way that I did not feel it worked at the previous institution I was at, at a state university. So I think how that would actually work for anybody is that as long as you're engaged in somewhat smaller groups where you're not anonymous, you're not a small, you know, insignificant part of a large group, but that you have uh, maybe relationships deeply with your your personal relationships, the people you might live with or the people you have children or small groups where you meet with people on a regular basis and have to deal both with the good side and the bad side of those relationships and to start to, I don't know, what what I might call put tension in the system, check your own personality, get someone else's. Um, All of those things are the training ground for the type of agency that I think religions represent and, it, and if I were to give you the best reason you should care about religion, that would be my best reason. All right. Is there anything special about Christianity or, or can we open this up to all world religions bring something to the table to help society form and, and, and flourish and help people communicate better and build thicker networks of civil society? I think it would be extremely ambitious for me to try to say that Christianity 
why Christianity might be unique in some regard. But I think that the principal foundation of Christianity for me that is different than other religions is the assertion that we're all created equal by a God that, that had a very particular purpose in mind when he created each one of us. I'm going to take a little different tact in terms of that and get people to think about a question that they might not have thought about before. Being a political scientist studying religion, I would oftentimes get a number of my colleagues saying, why do you waste your time with such an insignificant topic as religion? Haven't you read Nietzsche, God is dead? I have to ask them the question of, if you look at world history, what is the longest standing formal institutional hierarchy in world history? It happens to be the Roman Catholic Church. You might put orthodoxy in there as well as a formal hierarchy. Now, political scientists are also interested in social movements as well. And I could just easily bring up Hinduism and Buddhism and Judaism, Islam. All the major religious traditions have far outlasted any type of secular governing institution in world history. And it's not even a close contest. So if we want to understand civil organization and how people come together to work with one another for good and sometimes for bad, we had best focus our attention, at least in part, on religious organizations and religious populations. And I, I think I'll stop there. So I read a book recently um, that was very interesting, total fiction written by an atheist, although I, I think he maybe was turned, it's called A Pivot in Time uh, by Douglas Richards. And this particular book, I'm a fan of all of his books, but this particular book, without getting into the whole plot and everything, would the world have been better off without Christianity or not? If we would have allowed, or maybe if Christ would have moved into a, a position of power in the Roman Empire, would that have been more influential? And, and ultimately, they argued, the, the atheist author, he did really a brilliant way of kind of not alienating any particular group, by the way. Uh, which I shot him an email on and praised him about, was that the message that Jesus brought was of love and turn the other cheek. And it was totally contrary to the way life was in the past. And so that it forced voluntary action. And so to use coercive power of the Roman Empire as, as they plotted this would not have been as successful, they think, as changing the hearts and minds of people for the next two millennia. And that it was much more effective for Jesus to play out the three years of ministry and then ultimately die. And, and then that's where the author kind of left it. We didn't get into the ascension and, you know, that sort of thing. So I thought I'd throw that out there to think about the impacts of maybe Christianity itself on whether that has been a dramatic impact or whether other things may have filled the void. And that's why I brought up other world religions as well. Well, kind of off a, a similar line, I actually did have a question for the panelists, and I, I promise this is not, not a trap for the, the Catholics, I promise. <laughs> um, as a non-denominational Christian, one of the things, because I actually think Catholics do this well too, by the way, one of the things that I find interesting, that's not a totally unique aspect, I know other religions have this too, but interesting, especially about American Christianity, is the diversity of different belief systems and doctrines over time and you know you could be a methodist or a presbyterian or non-denominational or baptist and these have evolved throughout time and actually the catholic church does a good job of this there's like permissible disagreement that's allowed to happen the jesuits and the dominicans i think probably have some disagreements i'd imagine 
And this looks a lot to me like a sort of denominations look to me like a sort of federalism to a certain degree. And there's almost like a voting with your feet aspect going on. Do you think that the ability to exit and denomination serve some sort of function of uh, trying to, uh, you know, pick or select for the belief that allows for the most flourishing or something like that? Well, there are two really extreme ideas in my head within Catholicism. One is like the Abbey at Melk, which is a Benedictine Abbey. Their, their entire church is gilded. It's covered in complete gold. It's supposed to be so overwhelming that you, are, you have a physical reaction to walking into how beautiful this place is. And then the other would be like St. Francis, who said that the only time that he experiences the love of Christ is when he smells the rotting flesh of a leper. Uh, so... <laughs> These are the two extremes and everything in between. So like it says, having that ability to sort is getting down to that, you know, what is your specific comparative advantage? What is your specific charism that you can, can use? And if it doesn't contain, if you don't have that option, if you don't have that place to find that, then it, it's going to create problems. The role of exit that you just mentioned is incredibly important for the well-functioning of religion because the ability for a customer to leave a business keeps the entrepreneur on their toes, making sure that the customer is treated well. It's the same thing for religion. If you're not allowed to leave or exit a religion, either to another denomination or just to drop out, religions become very lax and they don't serve the social purpose that they can fulfill. And I've been a strong advocate for my entire career of keeping religion and politics, or I should say at least church and state, separate. Because the minute a church looks to the government for subsidies or tries to prevent other religious denominations and faith traditions from coming in, they lose their vitality. And it's not me saying that was true of Adam Smith in Book 5 of The Wealth of Nations made that observation. The other point I want to mention is about Christianity but all religions in general, that they have something very, very important in common. Even though there might be variations in terms of the theologies, views of God, and that every major religious tradition in human society has held the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In Christianity, it's Matthew seven twelve, And if you really think deeply about that rule, it's probably the best governing rule and the most simple constitutional rule that we could have for governing ourselves as a society. We're going to encounter many situations that we don't understand, people that we don't understand. And the way that we can govern our own behavior is to put ourselves in the shoes of others and ask, how would I want to be treated? And then treat somebody that way. This, again, was a common idea in Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments. The impartial spectator is really a, an expansion or at least a variant of, of this kind of thing. And for me, that's you know, when religions, all the true faith traditions in human history that share this golden rule are allowed to flourish, that's when civil society and religions place in that civil society uh, works for the good of all. When they forget that, woe be unto us. Vlad, I was wondering if you could comment, since you're our European representative here from Romania, on just differences in Europe versus the United States. Have you, is there large differences or not in, in how things have evolved over time? Well, so one big difference is about the relation between churches and state. So a lot of churches in Europe 
uh, are getting funding from the state. So, for example, in Romania, the Orthodox Church is getting millions of euros. Millions? Yes, they just built this giant cathedral. Hmm. So, and because of that, it's exactly the phenomenon that Tony described is happening, that the priests are not, don't basically have to care about providing a good religious service. Mm -hmm. And I would say there's another, so if you're looking at statistics, the United States is unique among rich countries in being highly religious. So it's kind of a puzzle, like why exactly is that? So part of it could be the relation between church and state. And another factor that is often brought to the table is the fact that United States has a weaker welfare state. So in a sense, if you don't have the support of, of the state for like free healthcare and so on, then you're more likely to be religious. That's the argument. I want to kind of bring to the table to get back to the, your original question. It's like, is religion good or bad? Obviously, it's not a yes or no question. So something that you know, I find fascinating just looking at how religious people are reading their texts is that they're always picking and choosing from the text, sometimes with the help of a religious authority, sometimes just on their own. So what exactly determines what, what they're picking and choosing? Because some parts of the Bible, you know, you shouldn't choose them. <laughs> Others are better. Yeah. Piecemealing it, you can kind of find your cause if you don't really look globally at it. Yeah. You're going to leave the genocide out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this looks like a good time for our break so we can open up the field for questions here with our group. So we will be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordon Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have lots of events going on. We have our PPE League starting off where we're talking philosophy, politics, and economics with college-age students and universities competing with each other. We're recruiting high school students for these types of events now. So if you have a high school student that's looking for a college that explores topics like we do here at the Institute, please be sure to pass along this information to them. We also have a high school teacher event that's going on this summer, and we'd like to get a group of high school teachers here to explore events uh, regarding the foundation of the country and the founding documents. If you have interest in that, come to our website and check it out now. Please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes or Spotify, please leave a review for us. It helps other people find us. We'd also like to do a mailbag episode. So send your questions to gortney.institute at gmail.com. All right, welcome back. It's time to turn it over to our audience of mostly undergraduates. Now the professors, can, there's a few professors out there too. You're welcome to ask some questions as well. 
but this time really has been devoted to the undergrads thinking about some fascinating topics on human flourishing and humanomics and civil society. And so we'll go to our first person again, please state your name and the university you're from. Hello, my name is Taylor Darks from Florida State University. Uh, my question is, how has religion or the use of it uh, contribute to the oppression of different groups? And how does this explain the influence of norms on civil society and institutions? I think anytime you're focusing on cooperation, you're, you're doing a question of cooperating with who, and the traditional answer even within religion on that is people like myself. If you believe that over to, right, in order to sort of allow yourself to go along with the development of religion over time, you have to tell a story about how that group has expanded, right? And so if you believe that that group expanding has constantly expanding, that there's a story that generally dominates towards expanding out beyond a very insular group, then you can probably live with that as a playing out over time. If you believe that there's something inherent to that, which says it's always gonna be an us versus them, and that this way of thinking is necessarily captured by that us versus them, then I think you have some serious issues with religion. I would add to this, that it's not only cooperating with who, but cooperating for what? Religion is exceedingly good at collective action. They're able to bring people together in part because they have to solve a very fundamental collective action problem themselves. They have to get people to believe in the supernatural and to contribute to the maintenance of an institution that promotes that supernatural entity, often through voluntary action. And so religions are pump prime for any type of collective action, and they can oftentimes be co-opted by a number of different movements who have a variety of different causes. Some of these have been wonderful throughout history, including the abolition movement, including Women's suffrage, believe it or not, the evangelical Christians were very influential in promoting women's suffrage because they knew once women got the right to vote, they would take away the booze from all the men. And they were also, you know, religions have been very good at collective action, taking away the booze from all the men, but we eventually got it back. So that's okay. But th there are other instances where, you know, the, the religion has been used to harness the or harness uh, repression against outgroups and to engage in violence. And in, in large part, it's, it's who can co-opt the group, what their goals are, and also an understanding. And I think this is so you know, fundamental that religious institutions are operated and run by human beings who have all the flaws and failings of anybody in the secular world or you know, however it might be said, they bring those to the table. Any institution, any institution can be corrupted, and that includes religious organizations. I'd like to add real quick that we just did a podcast here recently with Dr. Rachel Ferguson, and she just wrote a book called Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. And she spoke on our podcast how instrumental the Baptist church was in the Black community when there was oppression going on, and that that gave, it was a portion of civil society that allowed them to essentially start to fight back against the injustice that was going on. She puts it in a lot better way, and she's got a lot of other items in her book, but that would be a, a book that I would recommend. Yeah, I, I would say that religion, every religion has been used as a tool to oppress people throughout history. That doesn't mean on nets they have been. I don't mean that their main effect has been that, but you know, any religion has been used in that way. 
In fact, interestingly, at the foundation of Christianity, you know, if you look back through the New Testament, you look at who Jesus was most confronting. It wasn't the Romans, nor was it the sinners. It was the Pharisees. And I think that a common theme that you'll see is that religions that are in a place, you know, wherever they're at, that are in a place of oppressing people tend to have a constant theme of being involved with people trying to exalt the self or trying to prove righteousness towards themselves. And so I think when religion is about making yourself righteous, I think it oftentimes leads to oppression. When it's recognizing the, your lack of righteousness, I think it has the opposite effect. Specifically in the context of this discussion, uh, federalism and things like that, one of the things to note about European history is you'd think if you became king and appointed all of your siblings to the religious posts, that that would be a fairly monocentric power structure. It's amazing how often that turned into fighting between the church and the monarchy, resulting in some ability for people to choose and to, to update, discover, and, and break out of existing power structures. Let's go to our next question. Okay, so uh, she kind of asked it. Uh, oh, by the way, my name is Benjamin Talman. I am also from Florida State University. And uh, likewise, she uh, asked a question that's very similar to the one that I'm going to ask. But how, if, um, you know, if religion and, you know, uh, let's just say Christianity is supposed to be such, um, you know, a righteous force and supposed to increase our humanity and morals, how is it, you know, explainable that uh, the less secular uh, or the more secular regions of society, the more secular countries, you know, in Europe and the you know, more secular regions in America, talking about the, the city centers, how are they and like how and why are they usually more tolerant towards the, the them groups and outsiders, you know, such as the LGBT community, uh, migrants um, and the, the poor too? I think that causality is the other way around, that what makes you rich also makes you less religious on average. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, a good point is that oftentimes religion is needed where people feel desperate, right? A lot, a lot of conversion stories in the New Testament are people in the Old Testament are people in uh, very desperate situations. And I think as we see countries become materially more wealthy, you know, they're they have less reliance on uh, religion. So it wouldn't surprise me if city centers were both more wealthy and more secular. In fact, I would expect that to a certain degree, uh, which it doesn't quite get to your question of what about inclusiveness, but I think it gets in that direction of an answer. And it's a bit of a tough empirical question to address. I'm not sure how you, the level of tolerance in one place or the other, I don't think that's something very easy to measure. And so I, I think that would be difficult. Yeah, I, I, had, I have to challenge the premise of the question because I don't know if it's empirically true or not. We can pick and choose a few examples of you take that one church that always goes around and protests at military funerals and things like that. Yeah, there you go. There you got you got a tolerant one. But there are plenty of instances where religious institutions go out and, you know, help the needy. They're the drug rehabilitation. They're in prisons, prison um, reform movements and, and the like. Very opening to immigrants. In fact, immigrants, especially fleeing uh, countries from oppression, often find a, a church or a, some other type of religious group as a place where they can find shelter and get integrated into the society. So I think a blanket statement saying, well, you religious people are all, you know, very intolerant is, is uh, I, I question that premise. 
Well, we mentioned earlier that there was maybe a crowding out effect between people and their motivation to seek religion uh, when there wasn't as developed a an alternative support network, right? So there, right, you go back to the history of the social gospel movement where these sorts of programs were rolled out and that that was a substitute or a crowding out effect there. I would look at international comparisons and see what your prediction is, you know, as religion declines over time, what is your, your prediction of, of what's going on there and how tolerant or inclusive are those regimes? All right, next question. Hi, my name is Aaron Rivera, also from Creighton University. And my question is uh, kind of based off something that Targo said about uh, thinking and choosing with uh, certain Christian denominations. So uh, along that path, if people are able to like think or vote with their feet by choosing a denomination to uh, kind of follow, um, does that kind of create a incentive for denominations to kind of cater towards like social the social norms of the people that are joining them? Um, and if so, does that kind of explain why like a little bit of the reason why the U.S. has so many different denominations? The pregnant pause. I can see these <laughs> academics up here just thinking and turning. I'm going to defer to somebody else because I lost the train of thought in your question. I was thinking about something else. I apologize. Okay. Can we cut that out of the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> We've been known to cut a few things, but we're definitely not cutting that. So, so one of the ways that this has historically been argued is an argument between Adam Smith and David Hume, right? So Adam Smith predicted that in the United States, because there were a bunch of different types of religion that would be competitive, and that the result of this is that only churches that sort of said the, the pure and rational religion of which all philosophers have dreamed of throughout the ages, that's uh, not an exact quote, but similar, um, would emerge, right? And so when you compare the, the sort of modal Christ, Christian beliefs in the United States to beliefs in other areas of the world that are that are Christian have state religions, which ones seem more purely rational in the sense that Adam Smith was talking about? He predicted that that the that Sunday morning book club would be like philosophy class for you know enlightened people. Is that the case? Right. I don't know exactly how to, to like I'll defer to you to think about whether or not we're there, <laughs> but but competition doesn't seem to move in the direction of pure enlightenment thinking that, that Smith might have. Thought Now, Hume's perspective is that the Anglican church was perfect because it gave you a baptism, a funeral, a wedding liturgy, some songs to sing and all these things, but that because it was so corrupt by the state, nobody actually believed in it or gave it much credence. So you had all the ritual without any of the superstition. All right, another question. Uh, hi, I'm James Brennan. And... My main text says Creighton University, but I'm actually a graduate student at the University of, Nebra University of Nebraska. But um, my question is about the assertion that the vitality and authority of religion declines when religion and government, uh, you know, coalesce. And how does that square with the fact that, you know, up until a couple hundred years ago, ever since like the end of the fourth century, Christianity was very much intertwined with the governmental structures of Western Europe and um, even today, in a lot of Muslim countries, there's you know laws against blasphemy and against conversion away from Islam, and yet you know for that over a thousand years of Western Europe, Christianity was very dominant, despite the fact that it was you know very involved in government, and in uh, you know a lot of Muslim countries today, religion and government are very intertwined, and yet there's no real signs that that that's in decline. I will field that question. 
to go back to the one Christianity in Europe, Christianity was doing great for 300 years growing on its own. The Edict of Milan essentially made it a state church. It took some time to get uh, to that place. But once it became a state church, it started to find itself corrupt. Just look at the history of the popes many times. It, it does become a political entity, or at least a political position in Europe. Europe then went through a phase of a high degree of disintegration, where the church was really the, you know, had the upper hand relative to any of the feudal lords or kings. They, you know, yes, there was a Holy Roman Empire, but it was neither Holy Roman nor an empire. And it was just a mess. But the other thing to note is that Despite the fact that we see a lot of Christian imagery throughout medieval times, you have to realize it was the church that was commissioning the painters to paint things. And they didn't paint secular stuff. They wanted pictures of the saints. There's been a lot of historical uh, research done on this. The European population circa, I will say, 800, 900, 1100, was not all that religious, in part because they didn't have the number of priests to actually reach people. There weren't that many people literate, and the, the priests that were were oftentimes not that literate. Now, let me turn to, so, so the golden age of Christianity was probably a gilded age of Christianity. And, you know, to what extent belief was deeply held, very questionable. Let me turn to Islam now. Now, this, this is a big misconception, I think, within the West that Islam is a monolithic religion that connects to the state in many Muslim countries, much like you know, a church with a centralized structure like a pope or something can connect with a state somewhere else or archbishops or whatever it might be. National Catholic churches supported by Spain or you know, Argentina or something like that. Islam is actually a very vociferous religion, very decentralized. And so while there is, we can look at, you know, anti-blasphemy laws and, you know, you're not allowed as a Christian to come in and evangelize or anything. Underneath that is a great deal of competition between various imams, right? They, if you want to be a cleric in Islam, you got to make it on your own, right? You don't, some, some clerics do get funding. There's a few cases of Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia and things like this, where there are funded for special, you know, imams, individuals, but most clerics within Islam have to make it on their own. And when you are in charge of your own sustenance, you preach really hard and you bring people in the vitality of Islam. And I think they just have a brilliant institutional structure is to really connect the interest of the cleric in relation to their congregants. All right, uh, one more question. Hi, uh, I'm Maxwell Schutze from Crane University. Um, so my question has to do with uh, morality and religion. So you can say that a lot of people get their sense of morality from whatever religion they, um, they assign themselves to. And so, what, so with um, a lot of secularism on the rise nowadays, how are civil societies supposed to provide that morality to people, especially, um, Actually, sorry, I'm blanking right now. Um, but yeah, so how, how are you able to get across that sense of morality um, when secularism is on the rise and religions are on the decline? So I don't know if religions are on the decline as much as people think they are. If you look globally, actually, it's religion is actually having a good Having a good couple decades. Good run in Africa. Good run in Africa. Really? Good run in Latin America. A good run in China. Right. Of all places, we would think that religion would not flourish. Yet you see, you know, churches springing up under great oppression. But even here in the West, 
if, if, if you're an atheist or you're agnostic, thank your local religious congregations for giving you the warm afterglow of the morality that we have. And it's, it's not this you know, hugely codified, difficult thing. As I mentioned before, Matthew 7, 12, very simple golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you is a, is a core principle. I think of morality, as well as you know, our basic principles, like don't kill other people, treat other people well. This is not unique to Christianity, but it's embedded in all the major religious traditions as well. And that, let's thank those folks for coming up with that and, and propagating that message. I, I think that will carry on even as people don't attend uh, church as much as they may have in the past. I'll say that I, I would even to a certain extent dispute the notion that religious religiosity can decline. I actually think that secular movements nowadays tend to have creeds and they do have objects of worship. And I actually think religion is fairly anthropological and I think all humans worship something. And I, so in that sense, I think that actually like a secular humanism could promote morality in a very similar way to Christianity or any other religion. My fear, like a fear I have with all religions, is that we will slip from morality to moralizing. And moralizing, I think, is a very different thing than morality. And I think that different types of religions can, uh, or, or maybe we would even say different teachers in religions are encouraging a way to be moral, while others might encourage a way to moralize. And I think the society figuring out exactly what that looks like is, is very important. Give me a little more on moralizing. What do you, what do you mean by that? Um, moralizing is, for example, you know, pray, uh, a good example from the New Testament, again, is that the Pharisee who Jesus describes as, he, you know, he's beating his chest in, in the synagogue and saying, thank you, you know, for, for setting me apart from, from the sinners and things like that. That's moralizing, is declaring yourself righteous because you're able to follow a law rather than you know, the attempt to love, we'll say, for, for the spirit of it rather than the letter of it. Great. Any other final comments from our panelists? I would say that the idea that there's an objective morality that applies to every single person in the world is probably wrong for the same reason that we can have a one-size-fits-all government for everything. That, that the, It's a process of acting out a particular belief and trying to fit it into a life that's lived making hard decisions between equally good outcomes. And I think that that develops your character, which I would push instead of trying to focus on this universal idea of morality. All right, well, we'll let the final word be with our host here at Creighton University. This has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Creighton University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. A five-star rating helps other people find our podcast. Otherwise, forward it along to other people, friends and family. And we hope that they can enjoy it as much as we do doing it. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.